Thank you so much, Pastor Kenneth, for leading us in reading Scripture. And that passage is not an easy one to read. We call it the do-do-do passage. Do or don't do, do or don't do. And sometimes it confuses us. Welcome here to our service, and we pray that every time we gather as God's people and listening to God's Word, God's Spirit will write His Word upon our hearts. We are truly in the National Day spirit, and that's why the slightly different attire. And to remind us that Lent's Carnival is this Saturday. It's something we pull all our prayers and resources together to serve, to be a blessing to our nation, to our communities, to our neighbours. And so, how can you understand Christianity? There are different ways to understand Christianity. But one thing to understand about Christianity, or we call it the gospel, right, is that it's so counter-cultural that who we believe in and as a result of who we believe in, how we live, is very different. And so the logic of our world, the common wisdom of the world, is this. You live well to die well. And what do you mean by this? So in terms of health, the logic may, may flow along these lines. You've got to eat healthily. Eat your quota of fruits and veggie. Cut down on your meats. Cut down on the fried stuff. How many of you do that? Just checking to get your attention. Right? So you live well, and then you exercise well, and then you might live longer. If you live that way, right, you might die well looking back on a life of discipline, of a life of doing everything in moderation eating in moderation, exercising in moderation, and living a good life in that way. And then academically, and then at work, we want to start our children early on the academic and career ladder, and so they go to enrichment classes. And the logic in many countries, not just ours, if you, for you to live well, you've got to study well, for you to study well, you've got to, and it just goes on. And you look back at that, you started well, you studied well, and then you worked well, you invested a lot of money, and then you die with a sense of looking back with not a sense of discipline, but a sense of achievement. The gospel logic is quite different. You have to die well to live well eternally. And so Romans 7 tells you that. So I was toggling between two possible titles. Die well to live well, or you've got to truly die to the things of this world to truly live. And who is it that first pronounced this gospel counterculture? It is the Lord Jesus. If you truly want to follow me as King Jesus and be citizens of my kingdom, you die to self, you take up the cross, you follow me. For what profit, what does it profit a man or a woman to gain the whole world, to live well according to this world, but die badly, still under the wrath of God? So that is the challenge. If you follow the common wisdom of this world, you just focus on being a good neighbour and you harm nobody and then you die well, thinking that enough of your goodness has satisfied God and might pop you into the kingdom of God. Jesus comes along and says something totally different, does something totally different, dies on the cross, rises from the dead, so that we will not run by common wisdom. It's very important we get this right. So the story thus far is this. It's all about righteousness, the revelation of God's righteousness. But now, a righteousness of God has been revealed and 
in what way? In two main arms, as, it, as Paul reasons in 16 chapters. And the two main arms, the two main lines of thinking is that God's righteousness is revealed in His wrath against Gentiles and against Jews. And all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wrath of God is being revealed against all the ungodliness, ungodliness which means everyone here, the 500 plus of us here, we live with cancel culture. We are the original cancel culture. Cancel culture is not new. It's as old as Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, led by Eve and then Adam, we fell in the whole human race of cancelling God in our lives. That's what ungodliness means. The un, the prefix before godliness, is to cancel God. Out of my mind, out of my words, out of my life. Have you done that in the last week? Absolutely. If you disagree with that statement, Tell me, tell your neighbour, how many times you have thought about God in the way you think that God is there in your thoughts, in the way you spoke to your husband or wife, in the way you spoke to your children, in the way you spoke to your parents, in the way you thought of brothers and sisters in Christ here, in the way you think about this world. Did there have any God in there? It was the un-God, the undoing of God in our lives, and unrighteousness. And the second expression of this is God's, un God's righteousness in what? Not just in His rightful wrath for us cancelling Him, living lives of ungodliness, but God's righteousness is in grace to save both Jews and then Gentiles, which should be responded to by the only way, and the only way is by faith in the righteousness that comes to Christ. If that has taken us to the end of chapter 4, which gives us uh, the model of Abraham, that he received this righteousness by faith and was credited to him as righteousness. Then you ask yourself, we're now in chapter 7. From chapter 5 onwards, what's the focus? From chapter 5 onwards, it is the song that we just sang. So just now when Mona, my wife, was leading song, was singing a song and she went into science, right? I tried to disown her. <laughs> I don't know this woman, let alone she's my wife. But we know we teach this song to the boys' brigade and the girls' brigade. And over the years, we have done this for 30 over years, right? That's one of the favourite songs, the gospel songs, that young boys and girls who come from a totally non-Christian background get introduced to the gospel. For in these few verses, you capture everything you need to know about the wrath of God against us, about our broken lives against God, and how God sent Jesus to justify us, to turn us from sinners to saints to turn us from enemies of God to becoming the children of God. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This peace is only offered to Christ. Through Him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice, and why am I colouring that? In the hope of the glory of God. He goes on, not only that, but rejoice in our sufferings and so he's telling you, it's one thing to understand that you're justified by faith in Christ, in Christ alone, but God doesn't just justify you, declares you holy and blameless. He's like a judge. I do not know whether you found a judge anywhere, or you yourself. The judge has found this person totally guilty of a crime. And think of the worst crime. Is it molestation? Is it sexual grooming? Is it rape? Is, what, what, what is it? What, what sins? And this person is totally guilty 
and the judge has pronounced him totally innocent as if he hadn't done that. That would be a miscarriage of justice apart from someone standing in his place and taking the rightful wrath and judgment and punishment for them. And then if the judge presided over such a case and is forgiven, let's say, let's say it's me guilty of a sin, any particular sin, which is condemned by the law of the land, and then the judge not just pronounces me case over, I never want to see you again, Chris. He then comes down, takes off his robes, and then says to me, come to my house for a meal. I want to adopt you as my son. You ever heard of a judge like that? That's what's happened. But as you are adopted as the children of God, He promises you suffering. We rejoice in our suffering knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not shame us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And then you fast forward to Romans 8. And Romans 8 says this, For in this hope we were saved, that we will bear the glory of God. We will not live forever with all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We will be redeemed. And one day, this will be completed. For in this hope we, are saved, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For, what, for who hopes for what he has seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Are you still there with me? In other words, he's moved from four chapters of telling you about the what of justification. And from chapter 5 onwards, it would seem that hope to glory in God, hope in eternal life with God is the main theme. If that is true, then he's painting God's road to heaven through Jesus for both the Jews and the Gentiles. And there are four markers on this road. Nowadays on our roads, huh, we don't have milestones anymore. We used to have milestones. So in English, this is a milestone. We have to change that now. These are the kilometer stones. But these are the markers on your journey. It would seem that in, for Paul, there are at least four markers up to this point. Justified by faith in Christ. Saved from God's wrath by Christ. Peace with God through Christ. Suffering onward to glory in chapter 8. To be like Christ. This is hope in the glory of God. So how many of you, as you sit here, know that you are on this road? Because there are only two roads in God's eyes. The road, the narrow road that leads to eternal life, salvation, and the wide road that leads to damnation. Can you identify any of the markers in your own life? Which one is your milestone right now? You have been justified by faith, have you? Are you justified by hiding your sin, denying your sin, and blaming it on others? Are you saved from God's wrath? You mean God could be angry with me? Yes. He is rightfully wrathful against us. Peace with God only through Christ, not just because you are a peaceful person, you are a nice person, and to embrace suffering en route to glory. Which milestone marks your life? and gives you confidence that you're on the narrow road from earth to eternity. If none of these markers are there, the chances are very high 
that you are on the road to damnation. The only two roads. You must never believe the saying, all roads lead to Rome. That's common wisdom. In gospel wisdom, there is only one road leading to heaven. And so you need to know. If you're sure you're on this road, he speaks to them about this thing called the two enemies of our hope of glory that we have in Christ. What might trip you up and what might stumble you on this road to glory in God, with God. So can you think of them? And this is where in Romans 6-7, he highlights the two things that might trip you and me up. True of them in the 2,000 years ago in the first century, true of us today. But more so for them, with a particular focus on the Jews. And what are the two enemies that might trip you up in the hope of glory in Christ on the road to salvation? The enemies of hope of glory in God through Christ are sin in chapter 6 and law in chapter 7. And so in chapter 6, you must die, die, die to sin. And so in chapter 7, you must die, die, die to law. We must truly die to sin and law to truly live in Christ and for God's glory. Do you get it? It's so important, and so you need to know this for a reality check in your life. So a possible outline given that background from Romans 1 to Romans 7 is this. Dying to the law, verse 1 to 6. Dying to sin and law in Israel's experience of sin and law. Then living in Christ for all of us. There's so much focus on the law, and you sit here, by, when he mentions the law, he, meant, he is referring to the law that Moses gave, the Mosaic law. And so, what does he say? Can you read this together with me? Do you not know, brothers? He gives an illustration from marriage. And you should, I just did a wedding yesterday and we are blessed as a church to have many weddings. And at weddings that lead to lifelong marriage, you, it's not nice to speak about death. And especially many of your relatives are there and they are not from a Christian background. And here is Paul, he's drawing an illustration of marriage. He said, an illustration of marriage should be about love should be alive, should be about fullness, should be about joy. He draws an illustration from marriage about death. And so what does he say? Likewise is the lingward. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law, to the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that you may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for them. And so, if you're lost in the first six verses, the rest of Romans 7, you will not get to do-do-do. You can't be lost at this moment. The simple message of the first illustration is this. It takes the death of a husband, common knowledge, to release a wife from the law of marriage. And if her... If she goes after another man while she's married, she commits adultery. 
the law of marriage and law of adultery kicks in. But if the husband dies, she's freed from the law of marriage and freed from the law of adultery. Likewise, it takes the death, as it were, of the old law, the Mosaic law, to be released to new life in Christ. That's what he's talking about. It's the history of how God saves his people. And at every point at different times, you need to understand how God is implementing his plan to save you. If you don't understand this, you cannot be assured that you are on the road to salvation. God's road to salvation. And so, why must we truly die to sin and law and the law? Okay? So in Romans 6, we died to sin, verse 2. In Romans 7, verse 4, we died to the law. How did we die? Through union with Christ in chapter 6, through the body of Christ. And previously, it was the age of the written code. And now is the age of Christ and the Holy Spirit. And the fruit of it is the fruit of holiness to bear fruit to God. So truly, it's really about two stages or two ages. And the two ages or two stages is in the old age, you put sin, you try to deal with sin with law, as it were. You try to deal with sin with law, it will lead to death because you can't reverse the effects of sin with the law. And so, note that the law has a use-by date, an expiry date. Then the new age, you deal with sin and the place of the law in Israel's history. Then you add in Christ, the fulfillment of the law. Then it leads you to life. Please note that the start date the end date, the expiry date for law has come. The start date for believing in Jesus and to be made righteous for Him is, has already begun. With a focus on, for the Jews listening to this, do, is that right? That God gave the law and now the expiry date, is, the use-by date is, is gone? And so God's salvation plan, you ignore God's plans and times at our own peril. And so, please take note of this. We must truly die to the law. Its temporal and limited use is over. So my son and daughter were studying in Australia and then the, they were en route back to, to meet us in the UK where I was doing a conference and so they flew. And they flew from Sydney and then the, b before they left the flat, um, he looked at the fridge and what, what is perishable. He saw a carton of milk with a little bit of milk in there, he looked at the expiry date, it expired, but he says, it's okay, la. I'll just drink it, right? Oh, it's only one or two days. He drank it. On the plane, he became severely sick. Diarrhea, vomiting, and he was so weak, literally his sister had to carry him out. By the time they arrived en route from, from Australia to, to Changi, they had to see the doctor, postpone the flight, and all things went wrong. If you ignore expiry dates, you ignore it, at your own expense and, and peril. It's very important. God has told you the temporary use and limited use of the law. The law was never meant to save Israel. The law had three main functions under God. Expose, right? Arouse, expose sin. Arouse sin, as you would then. Then condemn sin. It will lead you to death. If you think that the law has been sent by God to save you, 
God didn't give you the law to save you. You've used it for the wrong purpose. And so Paul on the law for Israel thus far. Take a look, right? It brings knowledge of sin. It cannot justify us. It stirs up God's wrath. If you try to make yourself righteous by keeping the law, it increases the trespass. And contrary to grace, being righteous by grace, you, you think you are righteous by law-keeping, by some good works. And so he speaks about the downside of the law. So if Paul speaks so much about the downside of the law, right? remember the logic in chapter 6? The reasoning is if they listen to this law-free gospel that Paul was say we get rid of law, what will happen? If we get rid of law, we'll become lawless. So if we live in the age of grace, sin will, people will sin more. He says, no, that's totally illogical. That's evil thinking. Now, in chapter 7, he addresses a different problem. Because if chapter 6 was, what if we got rid of law, we'll be lawless, we'll carry on sinning so that grace will abound. He's now reasoning, what if we kept the law? as an assurance of our standing with God. If you keep going back and trusting in the law as assurance of relationship with God, you are doomed. So it deals with two sides of this. What if we got rid of it? And what if we stayed put with this? If we stayed put and put a full stop with law instead of a comma that leads you to Christ and then full stop after Christ, then you are gone. And that's very important to realize. And see how he reasons here. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? No, by no means. By no means. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to, to covet. And so, to covet, sorry, the words are too small there. If the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. And so what's he saying, right? It's a tale of two powers. And so what power do you experience in your life from day to day that governs your thinking, that governs your speaking, that governs your doing, that governs you? What power? Paul is saying, for him as an Israelite, they experience two powers at work, a tale of two powers. And Israel wrongly believed in the power of the law to overcome the power of sin. Sure, the law was given, but its three main functions was expose law, uh, expose sin, arouse sin, condemn sin, lead you to death. And so Paul's corrective of the two powers he actually was not proclaiming the power of the law. He's proclaiming the powerlessness of the law in the light of the power of sin. And he's saying that, you know, the law had a purpose, a God-given purpose, but sin is a great misuser, stronger word, a great abuser of the law. Nothing wrong with the law. It is good. It is spiritual. It is righteous. It is holy. Why? It is from God. And so, this is a woke moment for Israel. And a woke moment for Israel and Israelites' people, they underestimated the power of sin and they overestimated the power of the law, which God never told them it had the power to do. And so, um, 
our two grandkids, uh, the elder one is just slightly more than two, the other one is coming up to one years old. So a small gap between them. Then somebody bought them a gift, I'm told, and um, this gift was different tools and different toys. And one of the different one of the tools in this tool set, plastic tool set, is actually a hammer. So the younger boy, 11 months old, he took the hammer and started hammering his father's head. Then hammering his mother's head. Lightly, la, not badly. La. Okay, don't look so shocked. <laughs> and then my granddaughter picked up something else and started combing the father's hair. And when we zoomed with him, he said, hey, you look very handsome today. <laughs> so when you have those tools and you use them for the wrong purpose, right? if it's plastic and toys, it's okay. But you, when you use the tools for the wrong purpose in real life, it's slightly more dangerous and slightly more threatening. In the light of sin at, that incurs God's wrath, you're going to waive the law and your keeping of the law, which you can't keep because sin weakens your ability to keep it. Sin is the great abuser, the, weak, the great weakener of law. And that's important. So a woke moment for Israel, for them, their thinking is, you add law to sin, and law might overcome and then give you life with God. Paul says, you know, I've been there. I'm a Pharisee. Don't forget, I'm, I'm your teacher. He says that in Philippians, Philippians 3. You add law to sin, it's going to lead to death. So can you wake up to this? That God never intended. So I do not know... Uh, when you fly from one place to the other, have you ever been stopped by immigration, right? Especially with your luggage, etc. Some points of travel, and I bring boxes of Christian literature with me, our handbook, and they say to me, uh, "Open up, cannot go." So all the effort of carrying the handbooks cannot. So I put some of the handbooks and Christian literature in now my carry-on baggage, right, to go up. Have you ever been stopped, and they say there's something in there that you shouldn't bring? Right, can you tell me what it is? Uh, because if, it's, if you don't get rid of it, you can't enter this country. I told you about my Apple story, right? I, I landed in, in New Zealand for our first ever trip to New Zealand years ago and uh, carried a knapsack, a uh, haversack, came down to the immigration officer. They asked the standard question, did you pack this bag yourself? Yes, I did. Then, and uh, yep, okay. I'm going to ask you again, did you pack this bag yourself? Yes, I did. He re the officer reached down and said, What's this apple doing in your bag? <laughs> See, what's an apple in New Zealand? Nothing. But for New Zealand, Australia, you bring an apple in, it might contaminate the whole agricultural industry. So I said, uh, first time here, sorry, I totally forgot. I was supposed to eat the apple on the plane, but I didn't say, I'm like, being Singaporean, I'll say I'll eat it later. And so left the thing there. So have you ever been stopped in immigration? So you carry your, your hand luggage on board, small enough size, etc. Uh, I've had one in which there's uh, the combination lock, right? And usually the combination lock is now three numbers. Do you know that? Right? So how many of you remember your combination lock to unlock? Let's say the officer stands there and says to you, we spotted something through the x-ray machine, and can you open up your bag? And uh, in your old age or your youthful forgetfulness, uh, what, what's the number? <laughs> what's the number? You can't unlock it. He's not going to let that through, don't you think? And so, oh yeah, trying to illustrate this. Lah. Okay. You try the wrong number, right? 
death to sin, right? Death to sin. And yep, death to sin, zero. You trust in the law, you sure die one. So you don't try zero, one, zero. That will die, right? The other number is you never underestimate sin, right? So you don't die to any of this, it's still I, I, right? And you surely will die one also. The number you must try is not 010 or 110. The number you must try to unlock life is death to sin, death to law, and only one way through Jesus. Amen. <laughs> That's what Paul was saying, lah. Right? You don't die to sin, you don't die to the law, through Christ. You think you're headed towards heaven, you will not pass through. You will not. You don't try any other number. That's what I'm pleading with you for. I'm writing with the greatest clarity and passion to you. Please don't try anything else. And don't ever try religious law-keeping. So he finds it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God. So this is him. He delights in the law of God. Who has the law of God? The Israelite in my inner being. But I see my members another law waging war against the law of my mind. So he puts law of God and law of my mind on one side, that's under God. Then he puts another law waging, is the law of sin. Now it's not just a tale of two powers, it's a tale of two laws. And we ask as we read this final portion, who is Paul talking about? He says, when I, and in all likelihood, when you put the whole context together, the I is not a reference to Paul personally, individually. The I is most likely a reference to Israel, plural. That's my understanding up to this point. And so as a pre-converted Jew, there are three alternatives. Was this his pre-conversion state? Is he talking about his conversion state? Or is he talking himself as an immature Christian? And that's quite important to work through. You know why? Because he's got this deep wrestling with the law of sin in his life versus the law of God and the law of his mind that is bent on this. And in all likelihood, this is the common experience of every Israelite that knows the full requirements of the law, but know the full failure to keep it. He struggles, he struggles, he struggles. And as you struggle, if he's now a Christian, it should, it shouldn't lead him to a sense of condemnation. And that's precisely it. We ended our portion of Bible reading with, but now there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And that's important. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, with my mind, and with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And so that's where he takes us. And as you read a passage like this, no, I look, this, look at this and um, the pastoral team says this, this is a very difficult passage, right? <laughs> and uh, yeah, what does this have to do with us? We are Gentiles. We don't struggle with the law. The, gen the, the Jews did. But in reading one of the commentators, Douglas Moore, who's a seminal mind on the book of Romans, we mustn't escape this wrestle of sin. Because though we may not have the Mosaic law, 
the Ten Commandments, you and me slide and slip into law very, very quickly. Then after a while, what is law? Law is something you do repeatedly as your assurance of your right standing with God. You want to write that down somewhere? Law is something you do repeatedly. You cross the T, you dot the I, repeatedly in your life that you think will somehow pronounce you right with God. And so you and me are very capable of those things. And so while in Bible College, Mall College, this is Anglican College, every week, uh, every year as part of our training, it's called a Mission Week, in which we're sent off as groups of students in the cohort to different parts of Australia, and now it's expanded different parts of the world. And so we had a Mission Week by SMBC, Sydney Mission Bible College, that a fair number of pastors went to, is to expose them to evangelism. You learn all this theology in Bible College, what for? Unless you have a heart to save people from God's wrath, to give them the new beginning that is found in Christ, in Christ alone. So the Mission Week is where the lecturers went with us and saw us in action, whether we not just learn the gospel, but live the gospel and unafraid of Jesus. So we have to do things like just go door knocking, right? give livelets, invite them to things, present things. Um, and so I remember once fronting up to a door and a Caucasian Australian man came up and says, yeah, I, I said to him, sir, do you have some time to talk about Christianity? He said, I'm a Christian. I said, why? Um, I'm born in Australia. Oh. <laughs> he looked at me, must be thinking, you're not born in Australia, you mustn't be Christian. But I said, I'm a Christian too. I was born in Malaysia. <laughs> got converted here at Billy Graham Crusade in Sydney. And so not so nice to say we, you know, it takes a, a lot of courage from God to do that. Cold turkey evangelism. And one team went out to a different place. They came back with a report. They put out a gospel presentation. And then the speaker, one of the students, gave a call to believe in Jesus. And who put up his hand? It was the vicar of the church, the pastor of the church, who was sitting up in front. And he wasn't putting up his hand as a symbol or representative. In hindsight, when he found out, he had lost all love and interest in ministry, all trust in the Lord Jesus. But he was still going through the routines of doing what the Anglicans do, right? Their communions, their preaching, their rituals, etc., be very careful in your Christian life. I've said this many times. Just because you're born in a Christian family doesn't make you a Christian. You do not become Christian by osmosis or association. Just because you serve somewhere and just because you taught children's church, just because you went to children's church, just because you went to youth fellowship doesn't make you a Christian. You do not become safe by presumption. You become saved by affirmation. And all the time. So whatever you have done routinely up to this point, brothers and sisters in Christ, I warn myself as I warn you. Whatever you do routinely, please make sure whatever you do in crossing the T's and dotting the I's, it has something to do with the love of Jesus, the worship of Jesus, the awe of Jesus, the delight in Jesus. But thanks be to God through Christ. If you find that thanksgiving to God for Jesus is going down, even as you do a lot of religious things, you can be religious but not godly. 
Can you get that difference? You can be religious in your routines, but not growing in godliness. And so that may be our laws. So you made up some laws for yourself. And you presume that because you belong to a Christian family, you grew up in children's church, you grew up in youth fellowship, you, have, you are safe from God's wrath. You're going to heaven. Do not do that. And if you serve here, you're going to heaven. Do not do that. Always make sure that it is. I've forgotten. I went back to one more sermon uh, for the wedding sermon. I picked this up. Religion that comes up with our own man-made ideas of God and our own man-made laws is good views. Oh, sorry. You've got to sort out belief in our own man-made religion and our own man-made laws to make us righteous before God versus personal faith in the wonderful Lord Jesus Christ to save you from Satan, the world, and sin and to save you and turn around God's wrath and bring God's grace and mercy into your life. So I believe that this religion saves me. I believe that law saves me. You've got to believe in Jesus. So religion is good news, good views. The gospel is good news. Religion is actually good advice, but the gospel is the glorious announcement that Jesus is the only way to get right with God. Religion takes us to good works and leaves us dead in our sin. The gospel takes us to Jesus and makes us truly alive, but only as we truly die to sin and truly die to law. Religion whitewashes sin. The gospel washes white from sin. Religion becomes a farce after a while. The gospel is a force. The power of God to salvation, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. There are many religions that we made up over human history since the fall of man, right? From the Egyptians to the Canaanites. There are many religions, but only one gospel. And so I say, like Paul, I don't believe in religious laws, but I must believe in Jesus Christ, my Saviour and my Lord. So where do you stand in this? I don't know when I told this story this side. I've told this different ways. Our granddaughter, in meeting uh, the camp speaker who came, Graham Stanton, and his wife. Um, so Graham Stanton's wife, Kate, came to visit. And then out of the blue, after meeting Auntie Kate, she asked her, my two-year-old, our two-year-old granddaughter, do you believe in Jesus? Or do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Second question, do you love people? Have I shared this with you before? And this, we were stunned, we never taught her that, to ask total strangers those two questions. And the final question was, do you believe in hero? Or do you love hero? Right? My wife is here to correct me, it's very good. Do you love hero? And Kate asked, who is hero? And she said, our dog. <laughs> so minus the third question, Do you love Jesus? Do you love people for the sake of Jesus? In the church, because we are brothers and sisters in Christ, outside the church, because there's someone, they're not a problem to be solved, but they are someone to be loved into the kingdom. And we can love them personally. We can love them when we have something like that's carnival. Then you may not believe it, that a $2 entry pass which is not a ticket, 
entitles you to maybe $40 of food and games and activity, right? And a farewell time with President Halima. In the last few weeks, people have come to church and I'm, I will see a slightly unfamiliar face. Are you new here? Yeah, I'm new here. Why did you come? Two main responses of why people have come in the last six months. Oh, we tune in to the live stream during COVID. We've come because of the live stream. Second most immediate reason is, oh, what, how do you know about us? How did you come? Oh, we came to the Getty's concert. Whether it's on the big scale or small scale. Then, because we did weddings. Or we came because we came to the wedding celebration. We never heard a sermon like that before. We never heard what the meaning of, of marriage is. And you just told it it is. It's bringing two sinners to share a life together. And people come because we do funerals. Do you believe that? In all those ways, you and me have to answer. In the routine of our life, when we are crossing the T's and dotting the I's, from weddings to funerals to services every week, to our interaction with our loved ones, to the big things that we do. Is there Jesus in all of those things? The beautiful Lord Jesus, the glorious Lord Jesus, in whom and through whom the wrath of God is absorbed, in whom and through whom we have new life with God. If anything that we do, just pause for a moment, Jesus is not here in my thinking, Jesus is not here in my feelings, then go back, get on your knees and bring Jesus back into that situation. That's very important for us. So I believe, and we must believe, in Jesus as our Saviour and our Lord. That is the message. We must truly die to sin and death so that we truly live in Christ and for Christ. Let's stand and pray together. And we sing this closing hymn. And can it be, can it be that we should gain from dying to sin and dying to self and being made alive to Christ? The resounding answer is yes. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for all that you say to us in your word. We thank you that the gospel is a revelation of your righteousness, your righteousness in pouring out your wrath against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, for all have sinned and fall short of your glory. We thank you for your righteousness that simultaneously is revealed. It's revealed so that we'll know of your mercy, of your grace, of your redeeming love in Jesus, of a righteousness that, not comes, that does not come from us, but the righteousness that comes from you. So may we understand that this road of Calvary, this road from Calvary to eternity, we are justified by faith in Christ. We are saved from your wrath by Christ. We truly are your children now because of all that you have done for us, Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray how important it is for us to die to sin and to die to law. And we pray that we will only be found alive in Jesus and Jesus alone. This is the message we want to believe. For some, if not all of us, who have unthinkingly just slipped and slided to going through the routines and trusting in the routines religiously as a law that we presume saves us from your rightful examination of our hearts and the rightful condemnation of our lives. 
please help us to confess and repent of the subjective laws we make in our lives, to feel wrongly confident. Help us, move us to the true confidence we have in Jesus and Jesus alone, and in Him, to the small ways of life, to the big things that we do for you. And in this coming Let's Carnival, may we truly shine a light to our nation, which is walking through a period of darkness. It's not only just the exposure of this that tells us we are a nation living in darkness, but it's truly the revelation of your gospel that tells us all have sinned and fall short of your glory. But now, a righteousness from God has come in Jesus. In his mighty name we pray. Amen.